The Kentucky Supreme Court has heard arguments on an important new law's constitutionality. Former Republican legislator writes an op-ed for the Courier-Journal where he pretends that people actually care what he has to say. And finally, as a Kentucky school closes due to COVID and flu cases, we discuss this uh, bubbling up idea that mandates may be returning. We'll have all that and more today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Of course, I am your host, Andrew Cooperwriter. And before we get into it, as always, I ask that you like, comment, share, subscribe, follow the podcast. And for a second, I want to talk to you specific audio-only listeners or uh, listeners on Spotify, Apple, specifically. And I know there's a lot of you. Look, day after day, I'm on this podcast asking y'all to leave me a review. And day after day, you all aren't leaving me a review. I know how many of you are listening. Give me that five-star review, okay? I'm, I'm doing this hard work for you. I think the least you could do is give me a five-star review there on Apple or Spotify. I'm not trying to guilt trip you, okay? And as always, if you don't like it and you want to leave a one-star review, well, I don't want your opinion and neither does Apple or Spotify. But for those of you that do enjoy it, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but it'd be really great if you could go ahead and leave that review uh, there on the page. Like I said, I know how many of you are listening. Come on, guys. Let's, let's leave some reviews. All right. So without further ado, let's get into it. So the Kentucky Supreme Court uh, was hearing arguments on the constitutionality of Senate Bill 126. Senate Bill 126 uh, was a law that was passed to allow uh, challenges to constitutionality or state actions to be uh, randomly selected at request uh, instead of just in the Franklin Circuit Court. So how it currently works is anytime you want to challenge a law's constitutionality, you want to challenge uh, something that the state is doing because the state is in Frankfurt, you have to have that case heard in the Franklin Circuit Court. And that certainly, uh, remember how these circuit court judges are chosen. They are elected every eight years and they're elected by the county or counties that they represent. And what this means is a amount of people in Franklin County get to elect a judge that now has the first say-so over the constitutionality of laws. And that's how our court system currently works. So why is it so important that this would be proposed? Why does this come up now? Well, uh, as recently as 2021, 2022, there was laws passed, uh, several laws regarding of course, Andy uh, Bashir's behaviors, uh, certainly around COVID mandates and some of those limiting his actions. One that comes to mind is, for example, is House Bill 1. And this bill and said uh, was, was putting a limiter on his COVID actions. There's a few other bills passed that are putting a limiter on it as well. And Andy Bashir then proceeded to sue the legislators and the attorney general with an injunctive action, which, once again, that was a confusing case. Uh, this isn't just me saying this. In fact, the state Supreme Court ended up ruling that um, the original judge on the case, the Franklin Circuit Court judge, uh, Philip Shepard, was way outside his bounds, and it was way out of the normal. And when you think about how the case worked, and I, and I did a lot of podcasts on it at the time, back when I was doing a podcast whenever I felt like it, and I, I did a few podcasts on this at the time, but it, it really made no sense. I mean, 
Bashir uh, has made it a practice that when a law gets passed, he doesn't like, he just sues the legislature and the attorney general. But especially in some of these laws, it just that doesn't make any sense because what is he suing? He's getting an injunctive action from the courts and what's he's injunctifying them from doing? Of course, uh, uh, Amy Bashir is the one who is supposed to enforce the laws. It is his branch that does that. The other branch that can, or the person who can do that, of course, is the attorney general. But the attorney general has to bring cause against Andy Bashir. If Andy Bashir wanted to challenge the constitutionality of a law that would require him, like during COVID, he would try to attempt to ignore a law or come up with some legal theory as to why he believes he can do the action. He does. He does the action. And then that is challenged in the courts uh, by either a citizen suing him or the attorney general. That's the way it normally would go. But instead, uh, Bashir decided that he uh, wanted to preemptively sue, which created a lot of weird legal situations. Like I said, even the the state Supreme Court admonished Philip Shepard for that. And additionally, as well, of course, they ended up ruling that these laws were, in fact, constitutional. However, that meant, though, for several, several months, uh, uh, quite a good number of months there, um, geez, as this worked its way through the courts, I mean, I, I believe it was six months or so, that mandates were still in place. Uh, there were still lockdowns in place. There was still all these laws in place, even though the state legislature had passed a law saying that those couldn't be in place. Bashir had decided uh, he was suing on that. And because of this one judge elected by this one county, and he made a ruling, now the belief was amongst the state was that the uh, the the mandates held in place and there's all kinds of different court actions uh, to try to resolve this. And frankly, it was quite an odd behavior. But that certainly then gives a lot of power, though. And this is how these cases have always been heard is by this Franklin Circuit Court judge during COVID. Like I said, we saw how this affects the entire state very clearly, but this has always affected the entire state. That one judge or two judges or whatever in that county that's elected by the people in that county control almost the entire state with their rulings. That seems relatively unfair, and it certainly uh, uh, doesn't allow for, I think, a good representation of uh, the people. And so the idea was, well, if we could randomly select circuit judges to be first heard by, uh, then, of course, we would be able to not just take it out of the Franklin circuit, but we would be able to take it to any circuit around the state, randomly chosen. We wouldn't, uh, quote unquote, judge hop even. It would just be that we get thrown in front of a randomly chosen judge, and then we can go ahead and have that hearing when it's being asked. And, and this power of that judge is very clear. Now, the person who's actually challenging the constitutionality of this, you guessed it, Judge Philip Shepard, who loves hearing these cases in front of his court because it gives him, once again, more power than all the other circuit judges around the state. And that power comes with a big price tag. And I'll give you an example. So in 2022, Judge Shepard, Right, he was running for re-election. In that re-election race for that one seat on a circuit court judge seat, spent seven hundred thousand dollars, around seven hundred k, if not more, because of PACs, was spent in Franklin County on one judge's race, seven hundred thousand dollars. To put that in perspective, in twenty twenty two, the entire twenty second district judges, those are all the judges that cover Lexington, a town that is six times the size of Frankfurt, 
all the spending of all those races combined, 251000 Only 251000 almost a third. So for all the races, for all the circuit judges uh, that went on in Lexington, you had 251000 compared to seven hundred k spent on just one race in Franklin County. It's quite amazing when you think about it. And that is because of the amount of power that judgeship holds. Now, do I know if the Supreme Court is going to rule against this or not? I don't know. There are some constitutionality claims to say, look, it's got to be held in the circuit courts. And of course, eventually these cases do make their way in front of the Supreme Court, possibly. Um, that's definitely not always a for sure, but they could make it up there. And then those uh, Supreme Court judges would have the ability to make the rulings on that. But that doesn't that, that, that doesn't take into account the fact that for that amount of time, whatever that judge has ruled, if it's Judge Shepard, like I said, whatever he has ruled remains intact. And it's because of the way this was set up that we had mandates for so long even after. They were outlawed by our state legislature. So I definitely think it is something that needs to change. One small group of people in one county shouldn't have so much control over the entire rest of the state. Well, coming up after this, a former Republican legislator, uh, Bob Hellringer, um, he was a state house rep back in the 80s. He wrote an op-ed where he's fantasizing that people care what he has to say. I'll have more on that right after this short break. All right. So former Republican legislator Bob Hellringer wrote an op-ed last week titled, you know what? I hope I'm saying his name right at Hellringer. For all I, it's H-E-L-E-R-I-N-G-E-R, Bob. I'm just going to call him Bob from here on out. Uh, I apologize if I got your last name wrong, but um, well, no, I'm not really sorry because I, I don't really care, but I, I think I got your last name right at Hellringer. But anyways, we're going to call him Bob. So anyways, Bob wrote an op-ed last week titled, Lincoln Day Dinner, Would Honest Abe Be Disappointed to See Kentucky GOP Misuse of Power? And in this article, he fantasizes in some weird fever dream that the Jefferson County Republican Party actually would ask him to speak at this year's Lincoln Dinner. And so for those of you who don't know what a Lincoln Day Dinner is, that is every county that has an active Republican Party has one uh, at least once a year. And it's sometimes it's called a Reagan Day Dinner. Some calls it, sometimes it's called a Lincoln-Reagan Day Dinner. And, and basically what this is, is it's a fundraising dinner for that local party. The one in Jefferson County is particularly large. I went to it last year. Um, it had of, of around 500, 750 people or so at it. Of course, you buy overpriced tickets for crappy food. Um, it's always some sort of chicken dish that's cold and bland. Um, think wedding food, but like a cheap wedding food, not even like good, okay wedding food, but cheap wedding food. The best Lincoln Day dinners I've ever been to were either at one, the Claudia Sanders Dinner House, which free plug for Constitutional Kentucky. I am emceeing a dinner for them at the uh, Claudia Sanders Dinner House, which is one of the few places I do like to have these dinners at. Or um, if they decide to have something good catered in, like barbecue or something like that. Typically, when it's an event venue like this, like the one in Fayette County and other places, honestly, the food's not that great and the tickets are overpriced for what the food is, but it's a fundraiser for your local party. 
And at these uh, dinners, once yearly dinners, and they're called, of course, Lincoln Day dinners because Lincoln was the founder, one of the co-founders of the Republican Party. And um, at these at these dinners, they'll have candidates or other important people give speeches. So uh, every year, every constitutional officer is invited and they can give a speech. That's a governor, lieutenant governor, if they're Republican, um, treasurer, auditor, uh, commissioner of agriculture, um, of course, secretary of state, um, and attorney general. Right. And so any of those constitutional officers are able to. And then a lot of times these Lincoln Day dinners, if they are especially in smaller counties, will have their local state senator or two speak, depending on how many represent the area. And maybe a house rep or two speak, maybe a judge executive for the county speak. If it's a county where the judge executive is somebody important and it's not an urban district like we have in Louisville and in Lexington. But, the, you know, it's just kind of these people speak. And, um, and they, and they give these speeches and Bob here decided he wanted to write what his speech would. So Bob is imagining that. Um, so Bob used to be a Republican legislator in the eighties. Right. And he, he's imagining that he was invited to Lincoln day dinner and asked to speak. So this is already a little crazy, right? I mean, uh, to imagine yourself giving a speech that you'll never give to a room full of people who don't care what you have to say um, is a little insane, a little crazy. I know sometimes, you know, you get alone in the shower and you sing in the shower or you play out conversations you had in your shower. Well, apparently Bob gets into the shower and imagines that a room full of Republicans care what he has to say. And this is the speech he has cooked up. I'm going to... I'm going to read you this speech here. It's not very long uh, that he wrote. Um, and, and then we're, we'll break it down because this is, this is some crazy, so crazier than even doing this. But anyways, here it goes. In 1832, when Chief Black Hawk and his tribe crossed into northern Illinois, the governor called out the militia. Abraham Lincoln, who then lived in New Salem, volunteered for duty. He was elected captain of his company. An election, he said later, gave him more pleasure than any other. One day, while on patrol, Lincoln's company encountered an old Indian man coming the other way. The troops had signed up to kill Indians, and this one looked like a good place to start. But the frightened man held out a paper signed by a government official guaranteeing him safe passage. The men wanted to shoot him anyways, thus Captain Lincoln faced the first test of his leadership. He could have simply let them in, who'd elected him have their way, or he could have put the Indians' fate to a vote and appeased his conscience if he was outvoted. But Lincoln had a reputation, even then, for his sterling character. He informed the company that if they wanted to kill this old man, they would have to kill him first. The men backed down, and the Indian went on his way. Abraham Lincoln was 23 years old. It was said by people who knew Lincoln that he was a very poor hater. As president, he manifests his trait many times, particularly when he befriended and met with the leading abolitionist of that time, Frederick Douglass, Lincoln paid no mind to the harsh criticisms from some in his own party for, for conferring with a black former slave in the White House. He was so transparently honest, Douglass would recall. He treated me like a man. Lincoln, as a masterful trial lawyer, was a shrewd judge of human nature. He often said, if you want to really test a man's character, give him power. So as we took stock every year on this glorious 
occasion, I'm sorry, as we take stock every year on this glorious occasion, how are we doing as a political party to meet Lincoln's tests for character? Would Honest Abe be, dis Honest Abe be disappointed to see us misuse our power sometimes to pursue policies that are inconsistent with the noble ideas for which he gave his own life. The great emancipator led a civil war to reunite our country and in the process to liberate an entire race of enslaved people. He called it exactly what it was, a new birth of freedom. He said that America was the last best hope of earth. Recalling those iconic words, it is impossible to believe that Abraham Lincoln would support any laws that discriminate against gay people in general and transgender children and their families in particular. Surely he would be distressed to see, as we have recently, uh, parents in some states having to move from where they live because of new laws that forbid their doctors and counselors from caring for their transgender children in ways of their choosing uprooting and separating these fellow citizens from their families, friends, neighbors, schools, churches, and careers. Other such laws permit the humiliation of transgender students in public schools by allowing them to be referred to by false pronouns and restricting their bathroom use. Those measures were pa passed by elected members of our Republican Party. I don't condemn anyone for this, but only ask us to consider whether such legislation honors the legacy of the most extraordinary American who's ever lived, Abraham Lincoln, the humble but heroic Kentuckian who exhorted us to listen to the better angels of our nature, to bind up the nation's wounds, and to treat one another with malice towards none and charity for all. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So somehow, in Bob's craziness, first off, let's just... Let's just take a moment to reflect that this guy pretends like he has some sort of knowledge of how Lincoln would respond to anything uh, above and beyond everybody else. He, he, he almost, he has his own judgments and what he's doing is he's co-opting the idea of Lincoln to somehow act like his judgments and his ideas are somehow far superior to everybody else's in the room. But also, too, I mean, this is quite crazy. He's wrote this speech that he's never going to give uh, to a group of people not interested in hearing from him. And then in it, he has elevated his craziness to a whole new level as he believes a Lincoln. He believes that Lincoln, a Christian living in the 1800s, would somehow agree with Bob's new age interpretation of what conservatism and republicanism should be. I'm going to quote him again here. He says, uh, recalling those iconic words, it's impossible to believe that Abraham Lincoln would support any laws that discriminate against gay people in general and transgender children and their families in particular. By discriminate, does he mean Lincoln would agree with so-called gay rights? Which, by the way, don't make any sense because, of course, gay rights would imply that somehow they, we have rights that they don't. And that's, I don't think, is very accurate. Um, though I... I guess you're talking about gay marriage with gay rights. I don't know what other rights necessarily they'd be talking about for gay people. Now he's, of course, putting together transgender rights, which, you know, what that means is that, yeah, um, nobody, I can't chop off. Uh, if, if, if the law is that we're not allowed to chop off body parts because we think we're a different gender, that means none of us can, I can't do it. You can't do it. That's a fairly and equally applied law. The difference is, is that I don't want to. 
and I've gone over this a few times in the podcast, that saying that your rights are being infringed upon when we all are living under the same rule, the difference is, is I just don't want to break it, is a little bit crazy. But, but, now you could say, uh, everybody should have the right to marry who they want to marry. That could be a claim you make. But to call it somehow gay rights, like it's specifically targeting gay people when they make a law that applies to everybody, not just gay people, um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But regardless, um, he he somehow here is claiming that Lincoln would have, have absolutely, he knows Lincoln and he called him up. He said, Lincoln, what do you think about what the Republicans doing around gay people? And he was like, well, let me tell you. I'd be totally against it. I mean, the first state to allow gay marriage in the United States was in February 12th, 2004. That's almost 195 years, or that is 195 years exactly to the day because Lincoln was born on February 12th after Lincoln was born. The first marriage wasn't until almost 200 years after Lincoln was born. And he wants to claim somehow Lincoln would be a great purveyor for gay rights. Look, d d d d Lincoln was alive for quite a long time. He wrote about a lot of things. We know how he felt about a lot of things. Never once in his writings was he like, you know what? Republicans really should be okay with those two dudes marrying each other. That's a great idea. They should be okay with it. I mean, I'm sure that Lincoln was aware of, of gay people, maybe not as much transgender people. That's a little bit new age idea. I mean, I, I'm sure they had cross-dressers, but even cross-dressers in their time wouldn't demand that everybody somehow recognize them as an actual woman. You wouldn't think so, at least. I mean, the very idea of a man suddenly proclaiming to the world he's a woman and being a woman would be perplexing at a time when women cheating on their husband having love affairs was called madness for women and would get them committed to insane asylums at a time where the sexual misgivings of women specifically, because they're being put upon here, tr actually treated differently than men, that the sexual misgivings of women to cheat on her husband would result for, to her being thrown into a sane asylum. That was the standard operating practice at the time, something Lincoln never called out, of course. And, and yet, even with that going on, this Bob here believes that Lincoln somehow would have looked at gay people and transgenderism and said, wow, so we should really call them by the right pronouns. I mean, you want us to believe that in a world where sexual improprieties like women cheating on husbands were met with jail time. Women wanting a divorce could result in incarceration. He wants to believe that a time like that would have looked at transgenderism, that, that Lincoln, the founder of the Republican Conservative Party, would have looked at that with anything but complete disdain at the worst, at the best, you might get a scoff of confusion at transgenderism. And I guess the worst there actually would be you'd be thrown into an insane asylum for transgenderism. Those are your two options. But Bob here believes that Lincoln would have been really upset at how we're treating these transgender people.
after Lincoln, of course, was explained what transgender people was, he would he would be upset about it, surely. Then he says, and this is his other quote here, he says, uh, surely he would have been distressed to see, as we have recently, parents in some states having to move from where they live because of new laws that forbid their doctors and counselors from caring for their transgender children in ways of their choosing, uprooting and separating these fellow citizens from their families, friends, neighbors, schools, churches, and careers. First, if a family is actually going to a church while they have a child that they're giving puberty blockers to and preparing to chop off their body parts because they identify as a different gender, I'm going to mildly suggest that they're not going to a very good church. And maybe it's good for them to be moving churches. Maybe it's good for them to not continue going to a church that apparently must be reaffirming them. Second, Going back to the whole, how would Lincoln view this thing? Because that remember, that's his entire premise. That wasn't my premise. I would never ask such a stupid question about how somebody in the 1800s would view our modern day society because the answer is quite honest. They would look at it with complete and utter hate and confusion and an absolute questioning of how did this country get to this point? I'm not the one who asked the question. He was. So, so I don't think Lincoln would at all be distressed over parents having to move because they want to chop the body parts off their minor children. I think it would actually be more distressing to him to find out they're chopping the breast and genitalia off minors because that person woke up feeling a different gender. To pretend that when presented with this modern-day situation... Lincoln would respond in the way that Bob wants him to is nothing more than a complete and idiotic fantasy. However, this kind of fantasy land justification is what we can expect from this kind of liberal Republican. You, know, you can often find these kinds of liberal Republicans in cities a lot of times. Uh, and, and, and a lot of times it's because their friends are all liberals and they want to hang out with them. And they don't want to appear like the big old mean Republicans they all talk about. So they, of course, soften themselves and their friends hang out with them because, well, it's cool to hang out with a conservative. You can appear edgy and bipartisan and like, I don't just hate Republicans. It's just those Republicans I hate. When you hang out with somebody who literally doesn't represent Republican or conservatism at all. Absolutely at all. And of course, these liberal Republicans will keep the moniker Republican and keep hanging out with these liberals simply because it makes them feel special and important. It makes them feel like they're cooler than their peers. Something, by the way, someone who fantasizes about giving speeches and then writes articles about it, he would be exactly excited by that prospect. You see, these types of liberal Republicans, they call themselves Republicans, but they're certainly not conservative at all. In fact, the only thing they seem to disagree with the Democrats on is, well, where we're spending the money. Not even how much we're spending, but where we're spending that. For as long as we continue as a party and as a people that anybody who throws an R next to their name is somehow equivalent and a conservative, this is what will happen. There are parties in these liberal cities that seek out these types of candidates that sink out a Democrat light with just an R next to their name because they think they can win with them. But what's the point of winning if you're going to end up electing people 
that represent the exact values you're trying to fight against. Seems pretty counterproductive to me. Well, coming up after this, uh, COVID flu cases on the rise. Uh, talks of mandates, of course, been hearing those chitter chatter. We'll talk about all that right after this short break. All right. So is COVID mandates coming back? That's the question I've been asked a fair amount of times. And there's good reason to ask that question. We've been seeing cases uh, being reported to be on the rise. And of course, I don't know about you, but I'm hearing an awful lot about the possibility of returning mass mandates. In fact, Morris Brown College has reinstated one. And then Lee County Public Schools here in Kentucky has canceled classes and sports for a few days due to increased absentee rates. And they're pointing at COVID and the flu. Uh, as the reason why. So amid these concerns, people have been reaching out to me, like I said, and asking me, hey, do you think mandates are coming back? So first, I don't super trust the numbers. And there's a lot of reasons why. I know a lot of you are in the same boat as me with that. Um, I don't even necessarily think it's malice. I just think these people are really incapable and incompetent at their jobs. I mean, there's basic things that they fail on. Um, and you wouldn't make it so blatantly obvious that your numbers are all misconstrued uh, like they've done in a lot of situations. Take a look at this one here. So this is from uh, the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. This is the Kentucky COVID-19 vaccination dashboard. Uh, you can see there, um, this is from the Kentucky Public Health Cabinet, of course, and uh, this is the official state page. And I want to draw your attention to, off to the left, there is a uh, a chart there. And for those of you listening to audio only form, don't worry, you don't need to really see what I'm talking about quite yet. But so there is a chart and I've blown that chart up. And what it shows is the total number population of, uh, uh, of kids or adults or what have you in this age range that have uh, their vaccination statuses. So for an example, for kids under five, um, it says that uh, there is a uh, Three well, there's three million total people in our state, but um, population uh, greater or equal to five years old is 2.9 million. Uh, it's six and sixty-three thousand seven hundred seventy-three, and they say seventy-one percent of that is vaccinated, um, has at least one shot. Sorry, and then they say sixty-two uh, percent or two point five million is fully vaccinated, and then they say uh, one point seven million or forty-two percent is boosted or has additional doses. And they have an exact number there. And then they have population 18 plus. They're saying that is about 78% uh, vaccinated. That tells you under uh, 18, but over five is probably lower than 71. Um, but anyways, uh, they say they've got 78% vaccinated with 2.6 million with at least one dose, a 68% now fully vaccinated at 2.3 million. So about 300,000 people got the first dose, but didn't come back for the second dose on. And then they say about 50% or 1.7 million are boosted. Okay. So you're like, okay, those are some numbers. Now we get to the bottom line here where we start to see a gigantic, massive discrepancy that doesn't make any sense at all. So this is now the population over the age of 65 years old. So they say that 727,975 
Kentuckians over the age of 65 have gotten at least one vaccination dose or 97% of the population. 653,000, so about uh, 100,000, about, what is that, about 70-ish thousand less are fully vaccinated or 87%. So 10% of, of the population got vaccinated and come back for a second dose. But here's where it gets real weird. Boosted and additional doses. So remember, you have one dose, then you're fully vaccinated. Then after that, you can get boosted, right? Well, according to the state's website, 748,990 Kentuckians over the age of 65 are one are are boosted or have additional doses and that is 100% of the population over 65 how is this possible how do we have i mean that is 20,000 more p doses people vaccinated with boosters than there is people that got one dose and that is almost 100,000 more than people who were are quote unquote fully vaccinated. We're 13% more. How do we have more people over the age of 65 who are boosted than we do people who have at least one dose or fully vaccinated? Does that make any sense to anybody at all? I mean, the only thing that that could explain, that could explain how we have 100% of boost additional dose rate and we have more people in that population that are boosted, then uh, uh, um, are vaccinated. That's that's doesn't make sense. And so the only thing I can come to there, the only thing that I can uh, observe must be that they are boosting dead people. That's the only thing I can come up with. How do we have a greater number of people boosted than we have people vaccinated? Well, it's because people are vaccinated, they've died, and they're boosting their corpses. That is the only thing that makes sense. I mean, look at that number, 100%. 13% more than the people fully vaccinated, almost 100,000 more people. That, that doesn't mathematically work. <laughs> I don't know how you would make those together. I mean, you would think they would at least look at that and say, oh, we got something wrong here. We need to figure out where our numbers got wrong or maybe the way we're... Uh, presenting it doesn't make sense. Maybe maybe we're double counting people getting boosted. So if you got boosted three times, well, they're counting that as, as you now count for three people getting boosted. Um, you know, is, is this on purpose? You would think if it's on purpose, it'd at least be numbers that make sense. But I think this is just complete and utter incompetence. And this is why citizens don't trust their government on this, even uh, quote unquote normies or whatever you want to call it. They're not going to trust their government to handle it. When you want us to believe that 100% of the population in Kentucky over 65 is boosted, but not hundred percent of them are fully vaccinated. I mean, that just absolutely makes no sense. And so I, I think that really points to just how incompetent they are at handling like anything. And it's these kinds of things that make you scratch your head. I mean, the same people, this is kind of for health and family services. So these are the same people providing the numbers and the data to Bashir that led him to shut down businesses, try to force shots into people, shut down schools. And this is what their data looks like. How can they be trusted? Competence of these incompetent people aside are large-scale mandates coming back. You know, I think, I don't think so. And because, remember, this was never about the science. This has always been 
about the political science and politically speaking mandates are not good for the people in power. And they're certainly not good during elections. I mean, you know, the only way and, and a few people said this out loud, even in the media, the only way Trump would quote unquote lose was if we had a great economic downturn and something horrible happened. Well, then lo and behold, COVID comes along. So, Playing it up, putting this in place. One, uh, it would hurt the Bashir campaign because, of course, when Bashir was putting in these mandates was when he was at his lowest uh, favorability ratings is when he was energizing the base the most to come out against him on the conservative side. And so him doing this while he's in re-election mode right now would not be a good call. He knows that. He's not going to do it for that reason, I don't believe. And then Biden on the national level won't be pushing these things to be put in place because it makes him look incompetent. He ran against Donald Trump's mishandling of COVID. Now that COVID's over, it makes him look good. But if he comes back and says COVID's back, now it's going to make him look bad. The only excuse to do this, and a lot of people pointing this out, would be, well, they want to be able to mass mail out ballots. They don't care about elections. They can just mass mail out the ballots and make it work. And I guess that could be the case, and it could lead to some more of the uh, shenanigans that we've seen. But I think it'd be very hard. I mean, look at how much they're able to, quote unquote, beat Trump. I mean, realistically, when you look at the individual states, there's only around... 50,000 or less votes in certain states, but still 50,000 or less votes. You'd have to pull all that off again with us all wise to it. And that's the other part too about mandates. I can tell you this much. A lot of us have learned how to handle this, have learned how to properly protest, have pushed back on these things. And they know that there are, are already established organizations with trusted people that are ready to go because they've been through this fight and could be ready to go on this fight again if they ever did it. So could they bring back mandates? I mean, maybe they could. I think it'd be very hard. And I can promise you this. You would see one massive pushback from the people, not just in Kentucky, but across the country. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Thank you all so, so much for joining us. We'll see you back here tomorrow at one o'clock. Have a great rest of your day.